For both of our New Testament scripture passages, we are going to use Eugene Peterson's modern paraphrase called The Message. I'll read the first passage, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to join us reading the second passage out loud, John chapter 1, verse 14 to 18. First, here's what Paul writes to the Philippians. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Now will you join me reading from John's opening chapter. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory, like father, like son. Generous inside and out, true from start to finish. John pointed him out and called, This is the one, the one I told you was coming after me but in fact was ahead of me. He has always been ahead of me, has always had the first word. We all live off his generous bounty, gift after gift after gift. We got the basics from Moses, and then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding. All this came through Jesus, the Messiah, no one has ever seen God, not so much as a glimpse. This one-of-a-kind God expression, who exists at the very heart of the Father, has made him plain as day. Thanks, Greg and Jill. So when you think of the story of Jesus' life in the New Testament, there's a sense in which you could call this story the gospel of three years. And the reason you could call it that is if you charted out all of the episodes that the four gospel writers tell us and record about Jesus' life, they really fit in the span of about three years. And since Luke tells us that Jesus was age 30 when he started his earthly ministry, that means that the entire earthly ministry recorded in the gospel really takes place for Jesus between the ages of 30 and 33 the gospel of three years. This morning, though, on this first Sunday of Advent, I want to spend a moment speculating, 
musing about what took place the previous 15 years, as in what was going on in Jesus' life prior to that moment in the Nazareth synagogue when Jesus stood up and he took the Isaiah scroll and he stunned his local fellow townspeople by standing up, reading the the passage and saying, today this gospel or this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. What I'm talking about is what was Jesus up to roughly between the age of 15 and 30? All those years when he was not in any conspicuous or noticeable way Israel's Messiah or the world's Savior, he was just Jesus, Joseph, and Mary's boy. And the claim that I want to make this morning is that those 15 unrecorded years are also, in a real way, good news. That what Jesus was up to during those 15 years matters. That they are part of the story of why God sent Jesus in the first place. So much so, in fact, that I don't think it's a stretch to call those earlier years, that earlier decade and a half, the gospel of 15 years. And to me, what makes those earlier years gospel, what makes them good news, what makes them remarkable is, paradoxically, precisely how unremarkable they are. So unremarkable, in fact, that those town people in the synagogue that day, witnessing Jesus standing up and claiming that Isaiah's prophecy was now fulfilled in him, those townspeople looked at each other and they said, Huh? Hold it. Isn't this Joseph the carpenter's son? Yes, he is. So, I want to tell you about an aha moment that I had the first time I had the opportunity to travel in the Holy Lands. It was in 1997. It was a trip for alumni organized by my seminary. By the way, if you would like to have a similar aha experience, aha moment, why not consider joining me and Debbie on the North Creek Holy Land pilgrimage this coming August. There's a brochure back in the rack on the wall there. Debbie's currently nailing down the roster of our North Creek pilgrims. But back to 1997. It was early in the trip, which just like will be the case on our trip in 2020, means that we began up in the north in Galilee. And we had just visited Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, which currently, to modern times, is a rather large and developed majority Palestinian city. So we visit Nazareth, we get back on the bus, and we drive just 10 or 15 minutes up the road, and we stop to visit an archaeological site I'll admit that I'd never really heard of. It was the ruins of a Greek city named Sepphoris. Now, I was a classics minor in college, and so while I wasn't quite sure what this Sepphoris thing was all about, I was definitely up for seeing some Greco-Roman ruins, no matter how insignificant they were. What I encountered, however, as my seminary classmates and I emerged from the parking lot into Sepphoris National Park pretty much blew me away. It was immediately obvious, in a way that these photos might not quite convey, that we had stepped into the massive ruins of a full-blown Hellenistic city, 
with those huge pillars that ran down both sides of the two perpendicular main streets through town, with an aqueduct, with the Roman theater, with bathhouses, with this huge covered stone marketplace, even with a massive city wall, with one of King Herod's provincial palaces, and everywhere you looked, in every building that had been uncovered, there was a gorgeous mosaic floor, one of those classic Greco-Roman mosaic floors. There were more than 40 that had been discovered so far. Here's why this was an aha moment for me. Up to that point, when I thought about Jesus as a child and as a young adult, I'd always had this image of Nazareth as a sleepy, bucolic, rural village, a few small homes out in the middle of nowhere. Well, Nazareth was a village, except that it turns out that just over the next hill, just four miles away from Nazareth, was this huge, bustling, crowded, wealthy, cosmopolitan Greek city, where throughout those 15 years I talked about, King Herod was pouring untold thousands of denarii a year into improving this, as into an impressive provincial capital. It was the capital of Galilee during that time. And for me, suddenly, Jesus the carpenter took on a whole new meaning. I'd always had this image of Jesus kind of like an Amish woodworker. You know, he's kind of puttering away quietly in his shop, and he's doing small jobs now and then for local villagers. No, I realized that to be a carpenter in Nazareth at that time, to be in business with your father, meant that you were more involved in something more like design-build construction in the hot market of Sepphoris. At the risk of sounding patronizing, which the moment I saw Sepphoris is exactly what I realized I had long been, Jesus had a real job. He was part of a complex economy. He negotiated contracts with customers, Greek customers, Gentile customers, who were demanding, who were no doubt rude. He submitted estimates. He negotiated terms. He haggled prices. He raced deadlines. He and his father probably subcontracted to government officials, which, as some of you will recognize, means wading through whatever government red tape that entailed. To put this another way, Jesus was a normal human being with a normal job. He knew firsthand all the frustrations and aggravations and irritations that always accompany a real job in a real economy. And it was there in Sepphoris that this aspect of who Jesus is suddenly became real for me. In fact, I found myself pondering what I think might be the most profound and intriguing theological question possible. And that is, on any given day, on the job, hammering away, did Jesus ever smash his thumb? <laughs> this is an important Christological question. And if he did, did he swear? Did he say, me! <laughs> well, 
We laugh, I laugh, but I think we laugh partly because if we're honest, we're not 100% comfortable with this idea of a fully and truly human Jesus. Instead, we imagine Jesus floating like three inches off the ground all the time, and he's always just saying pious things, and he always has this far, far away glazed look on his face. To me, the gospel of 15 years the good news that we encounter in that decade and a half that Jesus spent hustling on the job there in Sepphoris is that more than we fully appreciate, Jesus is a whole lot like you and like me. He got up early every morning and he packed a lunch and he commuted over that hill to work and he stopped at Lowe's to haggle for nails and wood and other supplies. And he worked on projects that went over budget and that went past deadline. He got beaten out by competitors. He had customers stiff him on the bill. In Jesus, you see, God had quite literally moved into the neighborhood. That is the wonderful phrase that Eugene Peterson chooses to use to translate a specific Greek word in the message paraphrase that Jill and Greg read earlier. God moved into the neighborhood. What a perfect way to sum up the miracle that is really at the heart of the Christmas story. It's the miracle of incarnation. God entering his own creation in the flesh in the person of Jesus. Turns out the actual original Greek word that John used is not a whole lot less colorful and vivid. It's eskenosin, and it literally means to pitch a tent. In Jesus, John tells us, God shows up in the world and pitches his tent. Or in the more philosophical language, in the poem that John in his gospel writes in his first chapter, probably writing for Greek readers, he puts it like this, the word became flesh. Now, it would be hard for us to understand just how jarring that phrase would have been in educated Greek ears. Word, which in Greek is the word logos, was a technical, philosophical word that was borrowed from the Stoic philosopher Zeno. And it meant the divine self-expression, the will at the center of the cosmic intelligence, Except John takes this abstract term and he jams it into a phrase that would have made any self-respecting Stoic philosopher choke on their grapes and their figs. The eternal word, as Eugene Peterson puts it, became flesh and bone. It was an idea entirely outlandish, maybe even offensive to most Greeks as it was to a number of early Christian heretics who will go on to propose various explanations in which Jesus only appears to be human. No, John says, the word became flesh. And yet, how thoroughly do we believe that ourselves? This word on your bulletin cover, the title of our Advent worship series this year, Emmanuel, is actually a mashup Hebrew word that the prophet Isaiah seems to have coined in the passage that we used as our call to worship this morning. It mashes together three little bits of Hebrew to create one word loaded with meaning. At the beginning, there's I am. This is a preposition in Hebrew. It means with, 
The middle, manu, is a pronoun suffix. It means us. And then the two letters at the end, el, el, is the Hebrew word for God. You might be familiar with the longer version of Elohim. You combine them, and you get with us God, which means that the one whom Scripture calls Emmanuel is the with us God, or as Matthew rearranges the words in his gospel, God with us. This year, throughout Advent, we are going to be making the claim that the whole meaning of Jesus' birth is contained in this one word, Emmanuel, and that the theological claim behind it is not just some intellectual abstraction. No, it matters. It matters that Jesus of Nazareth is the incarnation of the living God. It matters that he's the word made flesh, that in Jesus, God has moved into the neighborhood. It matters to you. It matters this coming week. It matters in your family. It matters at school and at work. It touches everything that you struggle with, every relationship that you have. It touches everything you stress out about each day. It touches your hopes and your dreams and your purpose. The fact that Jesus is Emmanuel matters. And on this first Sunday of Advent, I want to get things started by suggesting three broad reasons why it matters. First, it matters because the word Emmanuel tells us everything we really need to know about who God is, what sort of God our God happens to be. Being Emmanuel, being God with us, is no accident. It is God's very DNA. It's God's character. It is his personality. If God took a Myers-Briggs personality test, he'd score really high on the I, except it wouldn't mean introvert. It would mean Emmanuel. To put this another way, Being God with us is not a bug of God's personality. It is a feature. It is who God is. It's who God has been from the beginning. Who God is in his inner being. Because God is love, God is Emmanuel. Now, other ancient Near Eastern cultures had deities that were fearsome, that were awe-inspiring, but who were consistently remote and far away but from the beginning walking in the cool of the garden with the first couple our God consistently describes himself as being in our world in our midst near to us this is about as different a God as anyone could imagine as Paul makes abundantly clear in the magnificent words of his Philippians hymn He's not a God, as Eugene Peterson translates it in the message, who thinks so much of himself that he has to cling to the advantages of that status. He's the kind of God who chooses to set aside the privileges of deity and take on the status of a slave, a God who becomes human. He's the kind of God whose personality is most perfectly revealed in the moment that Jesus kneels down and takes a towel and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Who is God? What's he like? He is Emmanuel, God with us. 
Secondly, because God is by his very nature and character, Emmanuel, God with us, because God has moved into the neighborhood, this isn't a God of whom we can only speak in the third person as an abstraction. This is a God who chooses to be and can be known. We read from the message a moment ago, but I want to read the New International Version. It's a more straightforward translation and how it renders John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made Him known. The purpose, the mission of God the Son. In other words, the reason that God shows up in the neighborhood, in the person of Jesus, in the form of Emmanuel, is precisely so that God might be known by us. That is what God wants. Here's how Peterson paraphrases this same verse. No one has ever seen God, not so much as a glimpse. This one-of-a-kind God expression who exists at the very heart of the Father has made him plain as day. How incredible that the creator of the cosmos, the maker of all of the galaxies, would go to such a length in order to be known by us. Who is God? What's he like? He is Emmanuel. God with us. Finally, as if anything could be more incredible than that, there is one more thing. Because God is Emmanuel, God with us, because God has moved into our neighborhood, into your neighborhood, the knowing that John talks about does not just go one way, us knowing God. No in every honest sense of the word, God knows you. Doesn't just know you from afar, but up close, firsthand. That's, that's the gospel of 15 years. In Jesus, God has experienced what you experience. He has smashed his thumb at work, for goodness sake. And did you notice how John puts it? The word became flesh and lived among us. Not among some first century Jews back 100,000, 2,000 years ago. The word became flesh and lived among us now. Because God was incarnate in Jesus then, he is incarnate in your life now. This endless knowing and understanding, as Peterson paraphrases it, all this came through Jesus the Messiah, gift after gift after gift. If you hear anything this Advent season, I hope you hear this. In Jesus Christ, God has shown for all time that he knows you, that he loves you, that he has come into your world to find you and to lead you home. Who is God? What's he like? He is Emmanuel, God with us. That is the gospel of 15 years. In Jesus Christ, God isn't just sort of human. He isn't just human-ish. He's not human adjacent. He is as real as the hammer and the saw that he carried in his tool belt. He is as real as and as near as the chair or the door or the bed that he spent his day making. 
as real as the table around which he spent time eating with his disciples. Because when you stop and think about it, the message of this table, the message of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is really the same thing as the gospel of those 15 years. That God is with us. That God is Emmanuel. That God chooses the oh-so-tangible, physical product of human labor. The product of the field in the form of bread and cup. Wheat harvested by a farmer. Grapes picked by a vintner. Transported by a trucker to market. Sorted and sold by a grocer. The Word made flesh. Incarnate in the real world. 